Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health by providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources. Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. For the past two decades, TA Sciences has been dedicated to exclusively creating research-based, clinically tested wellness products that help address telomere shortening through the science of telomerase activation. As you know, anti-aging has been a huge focus of my research, and I am thrilled to have TA Sciences as a sponsor of New Frontiers. Learn about their products, their research, their outlook on anti-aging at tasciences.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am talking with Dr. Sarah Mednick. Let me give you her background and you'll see why I'm really happy to be chatting with her today. She's a professor of psychology at the University of California, Irvine, where she directs the Sleep and Cognition Lab. Her first book, Take a Nap, Change Your Life, put forth the scientific basis for napping to improve productivity, cognition, mood, and health. A world-renowned scientist, Dr. Mendick's lab investigates the mind and body mechanisms that support performance improvement. Her work has been continuously federally funded with grants from NIH, from the National Science Foundation, and the Department of De Defense. Uh, she's been interviewed everywhere by everyone, including the New York Times and, and um, the Los Angeles Times and the BBC. She's been on Good Morning America and many other shows. She resides in San Diego and with her wife in the Hudson Valley. Sarah, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. It's just so cool to, you know, Sarah and I both are Sarah's book, her, her newest book coming out, Power of the Downstate, which is what we're going to be talking about, is published by Hachette. And she and I met through a Hachette function. And Sarah, I just thought you were the coolest immediately from that <laughs> little press junket thing that we did. It's because I kept just texting you while other people were talking and we just had our own little side thing going. <laughs> and it was really interesting. You're doing such cool work at your lab at UC. And I just, I want to learn about it. I want to learn about your new book. I want to share it with the world and just get your take on Downstate. So what is it? You know, to, you're, you're, so you're, you're creating a new lexicon for under, understanding stress. You're talking about Downstates, Recovery Plus, Rev Restore. Just talk about this new understanding of stress and this new lexicon and, you know, what you're doing. 
Sure. Thank you so much, first of all, for having me on. Um, yeah, as I said, uh, you know, I, as I've, as you said, I am a sleep scientist by trade. Um, and in my lab, I've been studying how we restore during sleep. And through that process, I got to really see that sleep is not the only way we restore. And also that restoration is incredibly important. Um, and if we don't focus on restoration, this is what leads us to grow old faster and to have chronic diseases. Um, and so one of the ways that I realized that that was happening is by looking not just in the mind, but also, you know, with the brain and using EEG, electroencephalography, but also looking at what's happening in the body by using ECG or um, uh, um, electrocardiogram in order to mm -hmm. look at how the autonomic nervous system was functioning. And what I saw um, across many different types of research studies was that our brains and our bodies are rhythmic. And what that means is that we have in, and what does rhythms give us? Rhythms gives us um, two different states. One state is what I call the up state. And that is the time that we have most of our energy. It is where we have, our bodies are um, filled with um, glucose and glycogen and our insulin levels are at their height. Our metabolism is at its height. Um, and we're, you know, our, our, our um, strength is at its height. Um, and then we also have the other half of this rhythm, which is called what I call the down state. And that's the time where we need to replenish all of these resources. And so the more, you know, every animal, every living thing, <clears throat> every plant follows this rhythm. And the more rhythmic, the more you get in sync with your own internal rhythm, the more you are able to resonate with that rhythm and have more energy when you're supposed to have energy and be able to replenish more when you're supposed to be in your replenishing state. So that's, that's the up states and the down states. And then I also, you know, looked at, I also wanted to sort of reassess how do we think about um, these different systems that we have. We know that there's wake and sleep. We also know that, um, and, and wake and sleep can, some, can be, you know, two parts of the same rhythm, um, the circadian rhythm. But then we also have the autonomic nervous system with what we call the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight, and the parasympathetic or the rest and digest. And I wanted to also re-initiate um, those terms into, you know, words that we could use, terms that we understood. And so I redefined the sympathetic nervous system as rev, because mm -hmm. what it does is it makes us rev, right? We're revving when we're in that fight or flight response. And then when we hit the parasympathetic system that rest and digest, I call that restore. And they are also two sides of the same rhythm. Um, to different sides of the same rhythm with sort of the rev as the up state and the restore as the down state. So hopefully these are kind of, you know, more intuitive ways of understanding um, how we can access these rhythms and understand these rhythms and how they work together. Yeah, I love it. It's actually, it does feel so much more complete than, you know, to sleep or not to sleep. It feels much more holistic you know, in, in, in the experience of a day or, you know, a week or a month, just the, the rise and fall of, of different states. And that both sides are essential. So, you, you know, if you think about an ocean wave crashing on the beach, 
the crash doesn't happen without the drawing in and the, the, the preparatory part of the, of the wave. And that's the downstate, that time where the ocean draws back yeah. into itself, builds its own motion, its own power, its own strength. And then once it's built up enough, then it crashes out and that's the upstate. And you don't have a system that's all upstate. You always have an equal and opposite downstate that has to happen just before the next upstate. Well, let me ask you in your work, how did you so how did you study this? I mean, you you used ECGs and EEGs, and I mean, I'm just curious how you set this up where you kind of you perceived it. I mean, it's just really elegant and interesting to me. Thanks. Um, so you know, I started just like where everyone else is, is just using EEG and looking at brain activity and neurons um, and groups of neurons as they you know show themselves up to uh, on the EEG, but then. I also, you know, had that thought in the back of my head that we're not just brains, right? We have these bodies and yeah. the autonomic nervous system is so often discounted by neuroscientists because it, you know, it's thought of as just being a system that's for kind of basic water and power functions and, you know, temperature control, but not really playing a role in any of these things that the lofty brain is doing. Um, and then, there was, you know, a, a group of interesting kind of scientists I met in Australia who were doing work on HRV and the cardiac uh -huh. rhythm. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because I also knew that the restore response, that parasympathetic response was specifically high during sleep. Um, but nobody was looking at how the autonomic activity during sleep was contributing to any of this um, these cognitive findings that we kept finding in the lab and everyone was saying, oh, it's just, it's the brain, right? I'm like, well, let's just take a look at that question. So we started measuring ECG along with the EEG and that's where suddenly we started finding all these amazing um, results where it turned out that I could account for more of the cognitive benefits from sleep by looking at what the heart was doing um, and wow. thereby, thereby measuring, you know, autonomic nervous system activity, then by looking at the brain itself. Can you give me an example? Yeah. So, so across the day, your autonomic system switches in dominance during the day it's mostly sympathetic what i call rev you're you're, you're revving right because you're in that state of you know going and doing and being right um and it need that requires a lot of energy and resources and so then when you go to sleep one of the most important aspects of sleep is that you have this huge bump in restore function. You have this huge burst in, in parasympathetic activity. And that's true for young people. And you see really powerful um, increases um, or switch in dominance from sympathetic to parasympathetic or from rev to restore um, in sleep and specifically with slow wave sleep, that sort of deepest restorative part of sleep. Right. But then when, and, and then we started examining the magnitude of the restore function during sleep and, and all of the cognitive benefits we were showing and finding that actually the restore function was accounting for more of the memory improvements than the slow oscillations themselves or the, the deep sleep themselves um, huh. that was just measured in the EEG. And then when I started looking in older adults, um, people 60 and up, 
brought them in the lab, looked at their sleep, and they really showed very little parasympathetic or restore function during sleep. And they also showed really no benefit of sleep for any of these cognitive benefits that we show in younger adults. So it started really putting together this idea that, you know, first, it's, you know, it, it, if, you, if you're somebody who studies sleep, you understand that we're rhythmic animals, right? If you study circadian rhythms, you know that every, every aspect, every cell in our body is rhythmic. Um, but then when you start seeing how these rhythms interact, um, that you have this rhythm across the day that every system in our body really obeys. Um, and if you can align yourself with those rhythms, like your eating, you know, your met metabolic system, your, you know, using your muscles with exercise, your brain thinking, um, uh, meditating, any of these things that really align with these day night rhythms, you can, you have really strong functions and, and, and you're much more powerful and you think better and you're, you know, your, your body's more fit. And then as we get older, it looks like we kind of lose these rhythms or we lose touch with these rhythms. And, and it seemed really clear that that was part and parcel of the reason why older adults lose functioning is that they stop really um, having this strong parasympathetic response during sleep. They stop exercising as much. They stop, you know, they avoid light um, and get that strong circadian burst in the morning that tells them and regulates their rhythms. Hmm. So those are all sort of from That's the fascinating. Lab. Yeah. So just a, I mean, I was just thinking that we were talking earlier about my daughter, Isabella, who sort of figures into a lot of my conversations. I'm just, you know, picturing her before bed. She's bound, bouncing around like a bunny, you know, and, and we don't do a whole lot of quiet time. We do, we do. I mean, we do turn the volume down on life a little and she takes a bath and that kind of thing, but she's still bouncing around. She can't help it. Yeah. And then she's got, you know, a transition into sleep with a story and, you know, a little cuddling and she is out <laughs> just out and it's just it's it, it's she's moved right into restore yeah uh, and she's moved from you know being in a pretty sympathetic place but her transitions are really marked and clear whereas what I hear you saying about you know as we age and as we get you know middle-aged and beyond we're not you know, we're not experiencing sort of a sharp demarcations, you know, we're not moving our bodies to getting a good sweat or, you know, engaged in rigorous intellectual activity or maybe deep community and connection or, um, you know, the other experiences in, in, in the nourishing experiences in life. I don't, maybe our diet has become really compromised and and exposing know. ourselves to bright light early in the morning. And, and, and we have so much exposure to light at night now, yes, which yes. also really interferes with our ability to tap into our natural rhythms. Yeah. Of everything course. you're saying is right. And, is and it's, it is. yeah. And, and, and your, you know, your daughter is a perfect example of that built in. If, you know, if you look at kids, they have that built in rhythm and they don't mess with it. Right. They just, they obey wow. it and they just go straight into it and it's super, super powerful and strong. And we have that through our twenties and then stuff starts to change in our thirties and really in our forties as well. And how those downstate systems break down um, in our forties and fifties can predict whether, you know, our risk for dementia and Alzheimer's in our seventies. 
um, you know, so, so there's, there's, there's things that we need to sort of think about as early as our 30s to stave off what happens in our 70s. And, and I think that's, a, that's something that's it's hard to like think about, like, oh my God, I'm, whatever I'm doing tonight is going to have an effect, you know, 30 <laughs> years from now. But, it, yeah. but it, yeah. Well, I think that that's really terrific. And I, you know, I, I am focused on longevity now these days with our, with our publication. And certainly that's a conversation that's being had in the longevity spaces of, you know, why not eat right? in your 30s, you know, why not consider some of these things? What happens? What's that breakdown journey? And is it, uh, quote, normal? Or is it a phenomena of the world that we live in? I think it's actually a phenomenon of the world that we live in. I think that there, to some extent, there is a decrease in melatonin across age, right there. And there is a, um, you know, it's it is harder for our resource the 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 rev resource system is has got to be in a balance, and there's got to be a control of um, how much sympathetic arousal we have by the parasympathetic system. Restore has got to come in and and, and decrease rev at the right time and over time. Um, it's you know, for older adults, it's harder and harder to access that that parasympathetic system. Um, and I think that, you know, in some cases, it may be natural. Um, there are studies that look at um, more sort of primitive tribes without uh, electricity and without any of the modern ailments that, you know, pull us away from our natural rhythms. And even in those cases, you see that older adults do stay up more at night. Um, they definitely have a, a weaker uh, rhythm so that, you know, when they're supposed to, when supposed, quote unquote, supposedly sleeping, sometimes they're awake, right? And, uh -huh. it's, and, and so there probably is some natural change that occurs. And maybe that was also, you know, evolutionarily helpful to have somebody up at night yeah. What keeping the fire going, you know? So, so I doubt that all of this stuff is all just from sort of toxic contemporary society. Um, but I know that a lot of the stuff also doesn't help, right? So the amount of stress that we have now, um, you know, just from social media, just from 24 hour news cycle, um, just from kind of the, the pressure, the social pressure that we have in terms of to keep pushing ourselves and to, you know, not necessarily have a really good retirement plan and, you know, be stressed by the amount of credit and the amount of money everything costs. I think that we are living in a way more daily high levels of stress um, environment. And it does make for um, a harder battle for our restore system to have to control all of this and to have to calm us down every night. So that's why, and, and I think we don't have a practice, at least in America, for really um, emphasizing and prioritizing downstate activities. Uh, we don't have a practice of taking breaks. We don't have a practice of having really decent vacations yeah. um, or of really supporting um, healthy behaviors in from institutions that, you know, that either hire us or um, educate us. Uh, so there, there isn't really a good, um, emphasis on that in our society. And I think that that really takes its toll 
um, in terms of the level of chronic stress that people have um, and the chronic illnesses that people have. Yeah, absolutely. This need to push it to just be in rev all the time. And mm -hmm. even, you know, as I was talking to you earlier about my own journey in my book launch, it being hard to say no mm -hmm. and um, be being okay with turning things down and just having to focus, you know, I need to focus on, on restore. I am going to move into restore mode really, really soon, but we need to do it as you say, every day. I wanted to just circle back to this idea, like as, as we're in REV or, you know, REV encompasses a lot of different things from, you know, working and thinking to physical activity and all of the various things that we're doing, I think, during our waking hours. And it sounded almost like a little bit like meditation, like exercise when exercise it reminded me of zen sort of like when exercising only exercise you know use your muscles when thinking really think is there are are we sort of half-assed about these things as we get older sort of not fully being in them and perhaps it's because we're not fully recovered or i mean any thoughts on that what does that make I mean, sense how many times have you talked to people who are in you know having a, a work walk <laughs> I was on the phone yeah. the other day with a guy who was like obviously in a really busy New York City environment and he was trying to work have a work talk with me and say I'm on you know I'm I'm doing this exercise stuff you know like so he could but he's working in the, and he's in this crazy very busy environment and I couldn't quite hear him and I thought so this is it like this is us multitasking trying to have it all and trying to have it all at the same time, right? And right. I and I and it's and I don't think that we can't have it all. I mean, I really feel like I have it all. You know, yes. I have like, I have this amazing wife. She lives across the country from me, so I don't have it all at the same time. I have these amazing kids, and I have to share them with their dad, and so I don't have them all at the same time. I have this incredible job. Um, and it's in Irvine and I live in San Diego. And so I don't have that job all the time, but I do have, when I have it, I really want to have it and be part of it and be present with it. But what that means it. is mm -hmm. that I can't, I can't have it all at the same time or I wouldn't do it all well. Right. Like, you know, and, and so that idea of continuing to push and try to have as much upstate stuff at the same time, every day, all the time, it is going to lead us to disaster, right? There's, we cannot keep pushing ourselves to try to maximize, constantly maximize um, all of our time to push as much into those minutes and hours of the day that we have. So the changes that you saw on ECG and EEG have to do with this attempt to mush it all together and sort of doing a lousy job at all of it and not restoring would you say that's true yeah it, very much so that as we get older the natural our our you know what how we're naturally meant to behave we kind of ignore it right yeah. we start we start to try to control it and we start to ignore those signals that say you know what i really should be going to bed at 10 yep. p.m or 9 p.m 
every night because I function best that way. I really should probably not have alcohol, um, you know, every single night because what's that doing to my sleep? I probably really shouldn't um, try to, you know, say yes to every opportunity that comes to me in one week because I don't actually have any time to go take a walk and do any exercise and I'm just going to feel crappy. Yeah. And, and not be at my best, right? So, so we start to get into the state of, of denying our own personal rhythms in effort to just do more. Um, and it, it is a losing game, right? It, it's yeah. a kind of, you know, it, it's, it, it's not a rational choice that we're making. You know, I hear how, you know, you crisp, crisply, you define kind of the, the different, the, 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 pieces of your life and it just strikes me that you've really learned from your own science (laughs) (laughs) and I love it it's actually it's inspiring to hear well it's interesting I think you know as as much as I write this book in order to um just say what's in my head and get it out there and so people can hopefully benefit from it it's as much a constant daily struggle for me as well you know I'm who isn't watching the news right now at, at 10 o'clock at night, yeah. 11 o'clock at night, you know, who isn't yeah. um, checking social media to see, you know, how many yeah. people are liking what I've said, you know, and this is just, this is the way that we live now. Right. And, and, and so there's, there's this idea of just personal health boundaries and the personal health boundaries have to be set by you in the same way that you would set relationship boundaries. You know, you, you have to have your own relationship to yourself and know what works and what doesn't. And the more you get your boundaries crossed in relationships, the more toxic that relationship will be. Well, it's the same thing with your health boundaries. You know, sure. if, if you're not sticking with those boundaries, you're not going to be the powerful person that you think you are or that you want to be. And then you'll see it reflected in sleep. It sounds like your sleep will start to get sloppy and non-restorative. I mean, can you, can you just, can you talk about that? Um, the journey, the experience of sleep and the various stages that we go through and, you know, just tie it in again to your overall um, structure. Yeah. So, I mean, actually the words upstate and downstate come from sleep science. So in Um, In the past 15 years, one of the biggest discoveries of sleep science is that we have these things called slow waves, and they are the deepest part of your sleep. It is the time when your brain goes through, your whole entire brain basically shuts, it turns on and shuts off over seconds at a time um, when you're in what's called slow wave sleep, and that's the first part of sleep. Um, And that those slow waves turn out to be the most restorative part of sleep. Um, They're the part where your brain is the most tuned out to the rest of the world and the world out there um, and all the signs and symbols and everything that keeps us kind of focused on, um, on the upstate. And it's the time where your body can go into repairing muscle tissue um, doing conducting memory consolidation and and, and uh, laying down these long-term memories, but also doing all the glymphatic clearance of, of cleaning out the mm-hmm. toxins that if they don't get cleared out, they can lead to the plaques that lead to uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, um, rebuilding proteins, um, all of these different, you know, um, um, 
all these different processes can only go on during a super inward state. Um, and that is the slow wave. And the slow wave has two parts. It has an up state and a down state. Um, and the really critical discovery was that the down state is where all this important work happens. And then um, knowing about the down state, it allowed me to say, oh, uh, look at all these other down states that we have, right? We have a down state of the restore system where the up state of, you know, is rev and then the restore system comes in and, um, and how important it is for the down state of sleep to co-occur with the down state of the autonomic system. Yeah. But that's really where, you know, when those two systems resonate with each other and they occur at the same time, you get this really powerful um, restorative sleep. So that was a really um, exciting discovery. So it's so exciting. It's just so cool. <laughs> I, in fact, I'm glad that you said it again because I was going to circle back to that original statement that of your realization that be, moving into fully, you know, that full parasympathetic um, state is perhaps more important than you than than deep sleep. Yeah. Or you need it to actually achieve. That it happens sleep. at needs the same time, right? That it really yeah. needs to align with itself, which is. Um, it's, which is a key point and, and, and how, when you eat, how you eat, when you exercise, how you exercise, all those things affect your sleep and your parasympathetic system. So, so, you know, it's really thinking about yourself as one whole system where all of the behaviors that you take, that you have during the day affect all of the outcomes that you want to achieve across sleep and yeah, overnight. Wow and yeah. you know, into the next day. It's so not just a matter of like, don't, don't fight before bed or, you know, I notice if I exercise too late, I don't sleep as well. It's just, it's like the, my whole day, the rhythm of my whole day yeah. is going to influence what happens. when I go Yeah. Sleep. I think that's really the magical step is to kind of get out of the mentality of like, that there's a silver bullet. There's one solution. If you just, you know, take this one supplement or exercise in this one way, um, everything is going to change because it's it's not right. It, you know, you are one whole system, and so everything that you do affects everything else. Um, and just thinking about it in terms of rhythms is helpful um, because that's actually the way nature is created. You know, once it, nature finds a pattern that works, it just keeps repeating itself. And so you see this rhythmic quality to you know every aspect of our lives, um, and just tapping into it can be really helpful. Mm. So just thinking about sleep, I, just, I mean, I wanted to circle back to what you're asking me. Mm -hmm. So once you go through that deep, slow wave sleep, there's, you know, a good hour and a half to three hour period where you have the most amount of slow wave sleep. And then um, you have a decrease in slow wave sleep. And what you have is an increase in rapid eye movement sleep. So in the morning, you have a lot of rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. Um, and that's really critical to think about is that REM sleep is, is, is um, circadian is driven by the circadian rhythm, meaning that it's going to turn on whether, however much sleep you've had, you're going to get REM sleep at a certain period of time of day, which mm. is why you really need to think about what time of day, what time of night you're going to sleep in order to get in the slow wave sleep that you need before the REM sleep circadian huh. rhythm happens. Oh, interesting. Is, yeah, which is why one of the action items I always talk about is, is try to get to sleep early because you can't control 
what time you wake up a lot of the time that's and and what what time you wake up doesn't really have an effect on your health very much it's really your bedtime that has an effect on your health because that's what enhances the amount of slow wave sleep that you have well that was a game changer for me i mean i sleep was I, i read about sleep in my book and um I struggled with sleep a lot and really put a, a, a massive amount. Actually, there were just like little micro hacks that added up to getting good sleep. It wasn't some miracle epiphany that I just learned how to sleep. It was, mm, and, and I, well, I think one of the biggest ones was going to bed on time, mm-hmm. <laughs> like minor detail, like actually mm-hmm. going to bed on time. I go to bed pretty early these days, like, you know, anywhere between nine and maybe you know, 1030 at the latest, Mm -hmm. but probably on average 930, that was the game changer. And that meant that, well, I use, I use, I wear an aura ring, which I'm pretty addicted to. And I I don't know how accurate it is. And I would like, it's pretty accurate. Is it? Yeah. We use them in the lab as well. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Mm -hmm. That's great. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's really nice to hear. Okay. And, um, you, so I can see that I get more deep sleep the earlier I go to bed and and it's like, great. And if my day, you know, if my day is a little bit saner and a sort of a little more structured with exercise and and we're going to talk about nutrition, but it also means that I don't have to set an alarm either. Mm -hmm. And it's awesome. I just want to underscore the fact that, yeah, if we're going to bed really late for whatever reason in our life, we're going to kick into REM and we're going to completely miss deep. I just want to underscore that for folks to, to listen, because we are understanding there's more uh, people are reading and paying more attention to sleep these days, I think, than, you know, or to, to the science of sleep. And so we know that deep sleep is important, but, you know, just this little fix of going to bed early. Other things for me that were essential is, you know, making my room really dark, keeping it really cool, um, you know, not having uh, big pillows and I, I, what else, you know, being mindful about, about the light, um, not eating, you know, or be, you know, just really making sure that I, I respect some, an intermittent fasting structure so that I'm going to bed, uh, not hungry, but mm-hmm. not, not having just consumed food. I don't drink. So that's not a, an issue being really mindful about when I stop my caffeine. I have, I, ha- I love coffee. So I, I do have coffee in the morning, but then there's a hard stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, all these little micro packs added up to good sleep. They totally do. They, I mean, it's, it's amazing that they, it sounds, and I guess the thing is, you know, in some ways it's like, okay, but everyone's heard this. And so nobody does it. So why don't they do it? I feel like the reason why people don't do it is that there's, that they haven't been given a good reason as to why. Um, And that's really what the point of my book was, is to give people the big why, you know, how does your biological system interpret light? Here you go. Here's exactly why shutting off all blue light after 6 p.m. will tell your body it's time for sleep. Why does your body want a consistent schedule? Here's why we have circadian cells. You know, we have these very rhythmic cells, and your body prepares you for what you tell it. What is, uh, you know, for when you give it a consistent schedule, it prepares you for what is to come and it'll help you get to sleep. It'll help you be stronger when you exercise. It'll help you um, metabolize your food faster if you keep a consistent schedule. So that was, you know, it's, 
I, I feel like people have heard all those different things that you just said, but unless you feel like you really know why you're doing it and you have the big picture in mind, I don't think people use them, um, but they really do work. You know, I want to say for me, I understood the importance just, you know, given my background and my training, but honestly, this is going to sound like sort of corny. There's, I'm sure a better, a better way to language it, but it's like, I had a low self a low sleep self-esteem. Like right. I had struggled with sleep such, it was such an issue for me, such an issue. And when you go night after night with insomnia, it, I mean, of course it kicks in poor mood and, you know, and low energy and depression. Yeah. I mean, it's just poor self-control. So, you know, sticking yeah. with habits. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, all, all of it, but I just, I felt so discouraged. Like I'll never be a good sleeper. Like that became my self-talk. Mm. And so for all of these super obvious micro hacks to add up to a good real night's sleep, and in fact, extend to go back to your first book on napping, I can nap now a little bit. I can do these little power naps oh, that's awesome. in the middle of my day at work and just get up and just, reset. Yes. It's yeah. extraordinary. So there's been this really kind of a lovely um, benefit. Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. I wrote my upcoming book, Younger You, Reduce Your Bioage and Live Longer, Better, because our research strongly suggests that we don't have to accept the inevitability of disease and unwellness as we age. And perhaps we don't have to accept aging as we age. Take that one in. And further, we achieve this biological age reversal without expensive and risky hormones, injections, or hacks, but with a simple, smartly designed diet and lifestyle program. When we saw our study participants reverse their bioage by over three years as compared to our control group, it was clear to me, even as we move forward with more research, that you needed access to our program now. You can do this in two ways. Our 3YY digital program encompasses what we did in our study in an actionable, all-encompassing, doable structure, and my book, which covers our study, my story, the behind-the-scenes adventures, and a dive into the fascinating world of modifying genetic expression, plus loads of recipes and bioage assessments and an appendix extraordinaire. Please see youngeryouprogram.com for details on how to access both. Now let's get back to this month's episode. I wanted to just throw out one other thing and get your thought on it that was, uh, that's helpful for me. And there is a um, app that I'll listen to sometimes. He's counting backwards with there's a little bit of rain in the background and he's counting backwards from 999. And I barely have it audible. It's just noise in the background. And that is helpful. I mean, what do you think about that? Oh, I think it's absolutely um, part of the habit formation. You know, I remember when I was um, pregnant and I wanted to have a natural birth, I did the hypnobirthing, um, which is that you're just supposed to listen to this woman as you're going to sleep. And she just is kind of, you know, telling you nice things as you're going to sleep, but it's the same tape and you're supposed to listen to it every night. And I would turn it on. And her first, like, and something, whatever she said, and I was out. (laughs) It was just, it was because you, you hypnotize yourself to, to, this is your cue. 
You know, your yeah. body's looking for cues. This guy's voice, what he's saying, everything. Your body's like, oh, great. She's doing that again. Great. I know exactly what to do. Right. And then, and then your body responds. You know, it's, it's, it's the randomness that catches our bodies off guard, right? It's the eating at different times that can make us not be fit, right? It's the, it's the stresses where we least expect them or the stresses that, that we can't control, the uncontrollable stresses that are mm -hmm. the most disturbing for our sleep and that keep us up at night, um, which is why the pandemic was so scary for people, right? Is because there was so yeah. much out of our control. Right. And so right. many new things that we couldn't get used to. And it was so hard to find our rhythm in a place where suddenly we didn't have, there was no rhythm to know, like, like we had to set up our own rhythms. And then in fact, a lot of people responded really well to that because if they didn't have children, you know, that were driving us crazy <laughs> um, <laughs> through the pandemic, a lot of people actually found their own rhythms. And, you know, it's, I find, I think that a lot of people are finding it really hard to get back to the quote unquote, real world, because they did have an opportunity to listen to what is their natural state and sleep when they wanted to and take naps and, um, you know, and exercise when they when was right for them. Mm -hmm. um, and that was an amazing little moment there, even though there was a lot mm -hmm. of terrifying, horrible things that were also going on. Yeah, that's right. That is Yeah, that is interesting. Yep. It did let us experience something that we haven't. Um, at all, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I just wanted to, I have a lot of questions for you, but I, I want to finish. We were just talking about what's going on with sleep and, you know, intense dreams. God, did I have a weird dream last night? Oh my God. That somebody had, was, was speaking to me in my ear. They had sort of, in, anyway, I, don't, I won't even go into the stream. It was such a weird dream. It woke me up. But what, what's, what's up with with dreams and, you know, our, the benefit of the dreams and what about psychic dreams? It's, you know, I, God, Sarah, forgive me, but I was listening to this NPR program on the, on the radio yesterday, driving home from my mom's house with, with, with my daughter. And, and this woman was talking about her, her dad was a sleep scientist, actually, and he didn't believe in psychic dreams, but she said, you know, he's coming to me in my night, in my sleep every night. And he says this and this and this to me. But anyway, that just popped into so what talk, talk to me about REM and moving into um dreams and what that does for us and yeah I mean it's 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 the next frontier of sleep science you know we just know so little about dreams but I think that the in general what people are thinking is that dreams are kind of hypothesis testing opportunities you know that there's that are that we're kind of obsessively going over um what will, you know, potential expectations, um, you know, so what will happen if I'm being chased by a wolf or what will happen if, you know, uh, I get COVID or what will happen if, um, you know, somebody approaches me at a job in a weird way or, you know, any of these or if this if this person suddenly starts to come on to me or if I or if I'm attracted to like what will happen if right and that's sort of the idea of um of where people think the dreams are coming from. Um, they're not hmm. directly necessarily related to what we're doing in our day-to-day. -day. Um, you don't see as many direct correlations with, well, I, you know, 
I ate this meatball sandwich today, or I went to um, a baseball game today. And so I'm going to dream about that. It's more this kind of this back of the mind um, questions that we have about, you know, whatever it is that keeps us daydreaming. It's very similar to our daydreaming. It's very similar to mind wandering in its in the type of things that we dream about. Um, and it's also not particularly productive in that kind of way that when we're awake, we're trying to really think rationally through things. Um, but it is in some way a subconscious meandering towards potential futures, you know, potential things that could happen. Um, so, so it's a really interesting it's a really interesting time period. Um, we dream in slow wave sleep as well, but they are different dreams. There are dreams that are much more kind of practical and they don't have that kind of fanciful quality that um, the dreams of hmm. REM sleep. Um, so there are, they're more like mentations, you know, they're, they're thoughts um, rather than these kind of flights of fancy that, that may or may not be productive that we have in REM sleep. It's fascinating. And the ones in REM are so, well, it seems like they're metaphorical. They're mm -hmm. not definitely, yeah, just, I mean, they make no, they're just, they're generally, you know, rather, rather odd. What about Jung and Freud, you know, in current thinking in neuroscience and dream, dream science? Are, is there a validity in some of their ideas? I think that the idea that we have these subconscious desires um, isn't, you know, it, I think that people do come around and say, well, yeah, that's probably true. You know, we do have things that we're not supposed to say, and we do have um, some uh, uh, latent feelings that we don't talk about that does come out in our dreams. And that's probably that subconscious quality um, that this is, you know, that kind of daydreaming stuff that you find yourself daydreaming stuff that you would never say out loud, right? That you would just mm -hmm. oh, oh my God, I really need to stop thinking about that, right? So, yeah. and you can catch yourself doing that. And, and I think that those things do come out in dreams as well, right? That you see that in um, like, oh my God, I can't believe I had that dream. And when you start saying that, you realize that's something that you wouldn't necessarily do if you had your prefrontal cortex operating fully, yes. during, you know, so, and, and which it, it's not during sleep. Um, but what it's also doing, uh, so, so the Jung and Freud, I think it, to some extent people don't say, oh, it's total kakapupu. It's like, it, there's a place for it, but you know, his, the, the specific um, hypotheses that they were, talking about the archetypes of Jung and sort of the sexual fantasies of Freud, I think people don't necessarily think have a lot of validity and that the really specific symbolisms, um, I don't think people um, have ever found any consistent patterns around. Hmm. Well, so what do we do with our dreams? Just out of curiosity, you know, you, so I used to write them down and the more I wrote them down, the better I was at recalling them. Is that a habit that's worth engaging in and what what would I do with it? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that they can be used for creativity. Mm. Um, I think that they definitely can be used for creating more um, conscious linkages with your subconscious. I think that that's a really, you know, I, I wake up in the morning and if I don't have to take the kids to school that morning, I will um, do morning pages. Um, and that's just three 
pages of just writing without stopping writing. And it's very similar to kind of, and, and a lot of the time what comes out is what was just occurring in my mind before I woke up, or, you know, it's, it's sort of writing out the, um, you know, and, and you're, you're not supposed to read this stuff. You're just supposed to write it out and put it away. Um, okay. And it's not a diary that you go over and say, oh, on this day I did this. You know, I have I have books and books and books of pages I've never read before um, that I just wrote once and put it away. Um, and it's just that idea of creating a space between the um, subconscious uh, mental state and the, okay, well, here's me being proactive and being directed and being prefrontal cortex-y during my day. Um, it just gives a little bit of honor to what just happened. You know, you just spent whatever, seven hours in some state that was very different from the waking state. And I think, I think it can be very helpful in that sort of transition um, mm -hmm. and just being in touch with those kind of feelings and thoughts. But um, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of cre creative scientific discoveries, um, music, uh, artistic discoveries that have come from dreams. So that's another way that you can sort of um, leverage the dream space. Um, so I think it's, it's, it can be super powerful. Yeah, I hear you. In fact, it makes me, re it reminds me of a, um, physician who I shadowed when I was in my own training and she was just this amazing scientist. She was just such an extraordinary human. She brought fluorescent antibody testing in the, in the, you know, early fifties sort of to the fore and mm. kind of figured out how to use it. And she was just doing this just extraordinary work. But, you know, later on she was, she had a lab that I was, and I was able to, to, to just stay, live in her house for a little while and just shadow her at the lab. And she was just extraordinary. Um, Joanne Whitaker. And she said she was running big, high-powered, very well-funded labs in the in the in the fifties and sixties, and she said that she would form her best ideas came from dreams. Mm. She said I would never tell anyone in my lab <laughs> that's where my ideas mm. came from. But she, she she her hypotheses, the 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 area of investigation that they would head into, she said came from her dreams. Well, I mean, Frederick Kekule, who won the Nobel Prize, in his Nobel speech, he talks about that his his discovery came from his dream. That's right. Yeah, we've heard that. Um, it's um, yeah, yeah. That's right. It, yeah. It, that's so, a, it, I mean, it's 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 a it's it's kind of a, it's just it says a lot about our about our society today, that we don't that we would keep it to attention. ourselves. We don't pay attention to sleep. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, medical school students are not explicitly taught sleep. There's no, there's no emphasis of sleep on its own. There's some pulmon, you know, pulmonologists can talk about sleep apnea. Um, yes. But, but there is, you know, this is something that we do a third of our lives and medical school students do not learn about it. It is the most natural healer that we have. And when you go to a hospital, you're kept up every three hours from all the beeps and the checks mm -hmm. and the, and there's zero in a hospital environment, there is zero honoring of sleep. Yes. Um, so it's, it's an, it's, it's an, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you have to be kind of secretive about listening to your own dreams because 
you know, medical science doesn't even listen to our sleep as being, you know, which is the, you know, sleep is like the greatest wisdom that we have in terms of healing, but that's not the, what's taught in medicine. I'm glad that you and other voices are changing that conversation. And we are, you know, we're becoming really excited about our wearables. I was just at a conference with um, teaching at the Institute for Functional Medicine, and three of us were doing a little Q&A, and all of us, you know, very cutely had our aura rings on. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Isn't that funny? We're yeah. just really kind of embracing having this in, in additional information. And I, I find it really, really inspiring. Okay. So on this note about, you know, what we're not taught in medical school, let's, you know, speak to me about nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. I was, you know, that was the chapter and the whole section of the book that I knew least about. And, um, you know, I didn't really know that much about exercise either because I've just been studying the autonomic nervous system and sleep and circadian rhythm. Um, so it was such a joy to dive in and just understand what is the relationship between eating and the autonomic nervous system and eating and sleep and mm -hmm. eating and, you know, melatonin and eating and circadian rhythm. And it turns out, <laughs> you know, we are one we are one system. What yeah. you eat has a direct effect. So when you eat, you actually have an inflammatory response. You have a rev response every time you put something in your mouth that, that your body literally responds as though, should I, is this a foreign thing? You know, is this something bad or good? Should I go to war? Should I mount an inflammatory response and have an immune reaction? Or is this healthy for me, right? And so you get this, you know, it's, it's a profound thought when you think about it, that every time you eat, you're, you're increasing a rev response. That means that you actually need to, every time you eat, also consider what you're putting in your mouth. Is that going to increase rev more than you should? What time are you eating? And of course, what are you eating? Is it going to have a super huge blip in rev um, if it's ultra processed and has lots of sugar? Um, or is it going to be a whole food that takes a long time to process and is a slow process that doesn't spike your sympathetic response? So I thought that was really interesting. And it also put the, um, you know, all of those intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, you know, there's so much data to show how good um, different types of fastings um, routines are, but I feel like none of these, none of these um, uh, um, explanations really ever tell you why they work. And when I understood eating to be just another rhythm, you know, that, mm -hmm. that, and that, and that this rhythm interacts with all your other rhythms, um, that, that it made suddenly made sense, right? When you stop, when you fast, you're giving your metabolic system a down state. When mm -hmm. you continue to eat, you are basically exhausting your insulin system, right? You're exhausting your ability mm -hmm. to mount a response to this food coming in and create enough insulin and process mm -hmm. your food across the day, insulin just decreases, right? So if you're eating at 9 p.m., you're much less able to process that food and you leave a lot more of the, of the glucose in your bloodstream than if you ate that same food in the morning when you're in your upstate, when you're your, meta, your metabolic upstate. So understanding how 
um, how nutrition is or eating is just another form of a rhythm that you can align with all your other rhythms um, was really so it for me it was a huge light bulb that went off um, and knowing that you know when you eat in the morning you have an earlier onset of melatonin when, when you try to huh. actually eat most of your um, a majority of your food during the day before the afternoon you have an earlier onset of melatonin the later you eat the later your melatonin onset interesting right wow. so everything everything affects everything right so so and 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 that was that was you know mind-blowing when i when i is that is that, that yeah it's amazing to me and is that because you're in rev and so yes. that so you just you've just thrown your rhythm off yes you're basically waking the beast right it's it's yeah. it's spent its whole day you know doing what it should and it should be ready for a long you know, mini hibernation, but suddenly it's like, raw. <laughs> I gotta like mount a response, a defense response to this new incoming piece of chocolate. Right. And this bag of bag of lace chips yeah. with, with a Netflix binge or something. Yeah. God, no wonder we're so, we're so off messed up. Off kilter. <laughs> exactly. and, so in my, in my work and we're, we're in alignment with some with these core practices, you know, the data on biological age and negative changes to gene expression, yeah. you know, is, is so is clear with sleep and the body of research in humans is just growing. I mean, insomnia is pro aging profoundly yeah. as yeah. is stress, which is so intimately connected in what you're teaching to yeah. sleep. Like they're both not, do, you know, being highly stressed and not sleeping is extraordinarily pro-aging. In fact, I, after doing my research, I wonder if stress isn't sort of the biggest variable. Um, I'm not sure, you know, they're all very important and they're so deeply intertwined, but. Uh, but I think that the more we can harness um, the intentional prioritizing of downstate's yeah. You know, as we age, yes. I think that that is the, the you know, like yes. as we talked about, your daughter has it inborn. She doesn't have to work on it. But the more, you know, as, as we're getting older and that the stress increases, you know, and, and yes. our response to stress increases. So as, you know, it's like a, um, you know, it, it's a golden rule of for every upstate stress response, you need to have a downstate restore response. You know, you need right. to have something that combats what you just went through. Um, yes. and, and then you can kind of achieve that, that right ratio, that good balance. Um, That's right. Or else it just creeps in as kind of this chronic state of over this ratio that's out of balance, right? Where you've got over rev and under restore. Yes, yes. And you're just sort of like dragging through life. Mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine actually emailed me commenting on, on, on something that I had, had said around stress. And he said, you know, you really need to distinguish good stress. Like you need to put some energy into that. Like, you know, no, stress as some, as, as, you know, you know, beneficial stress, stress is hormesis kind of mm -hmm. turning on physiologic processes that, you know, make us more resilient. And I said, you know, or yeah, there, he's absolutely right. And so I'm glad to be able to <laughs> bring that into the conversation. Like it's the wave crashing. Mm -hmm. it, it has to crash for us to be able to really fully restore. 
And there's, you know, the, the newer thinking about stress that I was really excited about and put into the book is this idea that, that idea that your friend said, there's eustress, right? The good stress. And then there's distress. Yes. And we just use the word stress. But what we yes. should be using is, is you know, eustress, right? Like yes. I, you know, your daughter's going to have to learn how to read and write and it's going to, it's going to suck. It's really hard to learn how to read and write. And it's, really hard to learn how to use good penmanship. It's really hard. And it's really hard to tie your own shoelace. Those are all use stresses, like buying a house just outside your, you know, financial comfort zone is a use stress. Those are yes. things that build us. They actually make us feel like we can handle life, that we can do it ourselves. Yes. Um, and they build a stronger frontal cortex. And the frontal cortex is the thing that is, a, you know, helps us to control our rev responses. So there's so much um, naturally uh, in life that is helpful um, for being for 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 creating that good balance between rev and restore. Mm -hmm. um, it's only when you don't have enough restore, or you're in a situation where there's, um, you know, chronic stress, be it from, yes. uh, you know, systemic racism, um, yes. poverty, uh, yes. malnutrition, and you know, you know, microaggressions in your workplace. All of these things that kind of build up across the day. And then at night, if you're not spending a lot of time processing and being, you know, good to yourself and getting to bed early and meditating and thinking through all of this stress that you've had, you, it, it, it doesn't go away, right? right. It, just, it just builds and that, that kind of out of balance ratio becomes chronic stress. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Very well said. Yeah. And he also mentioned you know, caloric stress. So, you know, yeah. a, a little bit of time restricted eating or, or a full fast or the stress of exercise or, you know, a, a sauna or, um, you know, doing some cold, cold bath or something like that. Those are other forms of stress that are anti-aging. So we were talking, right. on, yeah, it's just, yeah. So that I'm glad that we're, it's, it's, it's important to distinguish that. And that, and these, this, and these actual, these stresses will help resolve this, the damaging stress of, that you pointed out of poverty, of, of, of racism and, and so forth. Yeah, but it's also, you know, those particular groups that are, have the least access, right? That right. they've had, yes. you know, that's the systemic aspect of it is that, yes. you know, there aren't enough public parks in poor neighborhoods. There aren't enough grocery stores in poor neighborhoods. There aren't enough um, uh, messages to downstate. You know, there aren't enough accesses to downstate. Um, so there's, there's just, you know, the systemic aspect of it is that the rich people get richer in terms of downstate and the poor people stay poor and sick. Yeah. Yeah. And of course we see this reflected in, you know, quite painfully in health outcomes and, mm -hmm. you know, most recently with COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, all right. So as we, as we, uh, you know, just kind of move into the into the home stretch with um, with some of these thoughts, and I, I just thinking about this, you know, just thinking about the the institutionalized racism and some of the conversations that happened, really, almost you know, next to COVID, we there, it, we we I think we have been starting to shine some light in these 
clear inequities and, you know, may we all continue um, so that we can, you know, all learn from uh, getting in, you know, all of us become capable of actually having an opportunity to downstate. And Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's going to really be beyond the individual. Um, I think it's on, you know, it's really on municipalities, it's on governments to understand that if you don't fund public parks, if you don't fund education, if you don't fund, um, you know, good nutritional programs and um, sleep education and, you know, exercise education, it doesn't matter how much you tell people to do it it's it's not an opportunity that they have so i think you know as as much as individuals are kind of you know looking at themselves and how they contribute to these things it's that's not where it's going to happen it's going to happen at the at the government level um, of really shifting um you know who gets the money and for what um and so i i think that that's something that really would be helpful to, um, you know, and for, for corporations to incentivize good eating strategies, you know, to incentivize um, being exercising, right? Like mm-hmm. not just saying you should do this, but saying, I will pay you to do this. There is some, I think, you know, a, a, a nugget of movement around um, the recognition by the FDA of mm-hmm nutrition being a viable intervention in certain medical conditions. Mm -hmm. And that could be a step towards opening, um, you know, nutrition as an actual prescription. Yeah. Um, So we'll have to, we'll have to see where that goes. Yeah. What else do I want to ask you? So you're, you've already answered it, but you talk about obviously nature being essential. Any, any thoughts on that that you want to add? Yeah, I mean, that's another incredible um, opportunity that I think is underrated. Um, you know, that just the fact that we we really are animals <laughs> as, as much as our, our Teslas and our Netflix, you know, and all of the different amenities in our lives that make us sort of try to think of, the, of ourselves as being outside of the natural world. But we really do need nature. Um, and it, 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 there's so many benefits to, you know, taking the walk outside, um, taking the walk in a forest or taking the walk on the beach or going to whatever park you have to take your walk, um, rather than being in a gym or, you know, in whatever, whatever sort of concrete space you're in, if you could take it to, um, a natural setting, there's, you know, people exercise longer when they're in nature, there's more, um, uh, people exercise with each other more when you're in nature, you yeah. go for a walk with people so that you also get that kind of community uh, connection. Um, there's immune responses that are stronger when you're in nature than when you're not in nature. So, so in so many ways is this kind of quote unquote green exercise um, incredibly important um, for our natural um, systems to, and, and you're, you're exposing yourself to natural light, which is, you know, what the circadian rhythm is really looking for is what's the light source. And, you know, so if you stay indoors, you're not getting that natural light uh, mm-hmm. message into your brain. So definitely, you know, I think um, if we can, if we can really push for 
bigger um, investment in parks or getting people to take more time, like, you know, take once a week, get out of a city and get into a nature world or get into, um, you know, spend your time in the park rather than in a gym. <clears throat> I think there's so much evidence that that's uh, a better alternative. So I absolutely agree. You know, in Connecticut where, well, you know, winter, cause you come up to the Hudson Valley. It's, it, we've had, a, we've had a pretty long winter this year and it, I can, I can see the influence on my, um, on my well-being, you know, just the, the trudge to the office and I'm a cyclist and it's just, it's just not a great time to be outside. Although there was last year, I really tried to stay out as long as possible. And then dressing for winter became such a pain that <laughs> I just gave in and I started riding inside, which is better than, which is definitely better than not riding at all. Yeah, but for sure. I can feel, I can absolutely feel the influence on my well-being, um, not being kind of soaked in nature. Um, I want to just listen, we have to wrap up. We're totally over, but I just, <laughs> I want to ask you I know, one more question about, um, heart rate variability and you touch on it in the book, but is it, should we be t paying attention to ours? I know that again, we can access it on the aura. Um, and it's like of all my numbers, it's my weakest, it's my weakest link. I'll, I'll admit. Um, and do I need to be putting intention on improving it? And just what are your thoughts on, on heart rate variability in your, in your work? Yeah, I mean, we use heart rate, heart rate variability all the time um, because it is a direct measure of your restore function. Mm -hmm. So as much as, you know, I think the Aura does a pretty good job of, um, of measurement, but I think if you want to really be using heart rate variability as a indicator for what type of exercise you should be doing that day or, you know, um, how you're feeling on a day-to-day -day level. I don't know if the aura is going to do it. Um, I, you might need to get one of those real bands that really does, you know, like get a respiration band or a, a band that goes across the chest yes. um, to, to get the true um, sense of say your resting heart rate before you go, before you get out of bed, you know, just, just check what's mm -hmm. your heart rate at, what's your heart rate variability at. Um, it takes five minutes and it just gives you a sense of when I did that hardcore bike run, a bike uh, trip yesterday, um, am I ready for, what am I ready for today? You know, did my, um, did my restore response finish its final push all the way to getting back to uh, baseline or am I still in some sort of high rev response um, and I need to spend another right. day just doing a slow walk. So I think that there's a lot of benefit to, um, to uh, if, if it's particularly for athletes, for, for sensing where you are across each day and letting that be a guide. Um, and I, I had this amazing opportunity to interview uh, Glover Teixeira, who became the MMA um, middle light, uh, gosh, which some, some weight championship of MMA. Mm -hmm. And he's, uh, you know, he, he's the downstate maven. You know, he's really wow. the guy who, he was 36, and he was trained to be just go balls to the wall, hardcore 
um, fighter and was falling apart at the age of 36 when most fighters fall apart and stopped and most people retire at that point. And he, he hadn't become world champion yet and he wanted to become world champion. And so he started reading about, um, you know, spiritual practice and he started reading, um, you know, all sorts of books about resting and he, and he went to a specific, um, training camp called the Performance Institute, which is basically all about measuring heart rate variability and heart rate to use as a guide to tell you whether you should, you know, whether you need more recovery or whether you're ready to go hard again. And for the most part, that is totally an, you know, antithesis to what MMA fighters think about because right. they just go hard all the time. Right. But when he started doing this new training and started, you know, he talks about it as his chill, like really getting into his chill, the, the training program that they would give him would be like a third of what he used to do. And yeah. he, felt embarrassed about it because it was so, it, it was so under, um, he felt like he was underperforming and he felt guilty about how little training he was doing, but the results were amazing. You know, he suddenly became a world champion fighter at, he won at 41. He won his, he won the belt, became world champion at the age of 41. He's the oldest first world champion to ever in, you know, in history. And he says, and I believe him, it's because of this paying attention to the downstate, paying attention to his chill and paying attention to not, you know, his recovery process. Um, That's and, amazing. and a lot of it has to do with his heart rate. So, wow. so, um, yeah, I, I think, I think that there's a lot of secrets in that, that, that we have yet to unlock. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the Lance Armstrong. I mean, I, doping not withstanding but talking about how athletes don't don't take recovery seriously and and you know during when I was competing I didn't and I ended up burning out you know trying to be in the rev all the mm. time mm. that's the amateur like he said that's what us amateur athletes like myself do and I did that I absolutely did and then I face planted <laughs> but yes I would like to I, I I'm inspired with your comments on using heart rate variability in that way it's um, I think it could be really quite useful. Well, listen, Sarah, it was just lovely to spend time with you. We could keep going. I, I know. I <laughs> like it's so great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been so much fun to talk with you. And, and, you know, keep me posted on your research. It's, it's needed in this space and the way that you're fusing, just bringing together, unifying so many different areas that we know are essential and, and bringing this, this whole, whole picture, uh, this whole person approach to sleep. This whole day, this, this whole, this 24 hour day or this line, you know, just, I mean, just the way that you're thinking about sleep is, is lovely and it resonates with me quite a bit. Thank you so much, Kara. I really appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where our sponsors help bring the very best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. Not everyone can be a sponsor on my platform, and I so appreciate the good work, the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Biotics, TA Sciences, and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic and can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com, tasciences.com, and integrativepro.com, and please tell them you learned about them on New Frontiers.
If it's not too much to ask, I would appreciate a thumbs up and a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.